Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome to this episode of Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I'm your host, Justin. For those of you listening on Patreon, you get the ad-free version. Everybody else, sorry, but we are going to take an ad break somewhere in the middle of the episode. Before we get going, I do have to thank new Patreon subscribers. We have Jim Bevan, Brenda Riley, and Stephanie Openhuber. Stephanie, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. If I didn't, I apologize. And let me state some sources as well real quick. We got Boston Globe, Boston.com, Smithsonian Magazine, New York Times, NPR News, and GardnerMuseum.org. And oddly enough, I will say this, the Wikipedia pages is pretty informative as well, and they link all of these sources and a couple of books. So, there is that. For those of you interested in Patreon, go on there. You can check out and see if there's any episodes you might like. We have a 2 5 and $10 tier. We put out too many episodes and one full length every month. Uh, it's usually towards the end of the month or rolls over to the beginning of the next month, but they always get done, whether they're on time or not. But to check that out, you can go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. Now that we got all that behind us, let's go ahead and get on with the show. So a little bit of context on the museum here. It was first started by one woman, and she was obviously super wealthy, but she built this museum out of her private Venetian Palazzo-inspired home. Pretty much did it just for the education and enjoyment of the public forever, and we're almost 100 years past that. She died in 1924. After she did die, though, museum had some problems with money. She left the museum with $3.6 million endowment, but in her will, she stipulated that the arrangement of the artwork should not be altered and no items were to be sold or bought into the collection. This was all her collection. By the 1980s, though, the museum started running out of money. And I mean, 1924, $3.6 million was a lot of money. But because the museum started running out of money, uh, it started falling apart. It had no climate control system, had no insurance policy. There was no maintenance really done on the building. But in 1982, the FBI found out there was a plot to rob it by some Boston criminals. And the museum ended up using some funds. They magically came up with some money to improve security there. Um, some of the improvements were 60 infrared motion detectors and a closed-circuit television system that consisted of four cameras placed around the building's perimeter. There were no cameras installed because the Board of Trustees thought installing such equipment in the that kind of historical building would be too expensive. 
so they decided just to hire some more guards. They did have a few security improvements, but still, the only way police could be called to the museum was if a button was pushed that was located underneath the security desk. Now, a lot of other museums, obviously, they had some fail-safe systems. They had night watchmen that would make hourly phone calls to the police to indicate that everything was okay, but the Gardner Museum did not do that. Uh, at one point, an independent security consultant reviewed the museum's operations in 1988 and said that they are on par with most other museums, but recommended a lot of improvements. And the security director at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston also suggested security upgrades to the museum. So because of the financial strain... And because of Isabella Stewart Gardner's wishes against any major renovations, the Board of Trustees did not approve any of the security enhancements. The board also denied a request from the security director for higher guard salaries so that they could attract more qualified people for the jobs. The current guards were paid just above minimum wage, and the security system in the museum it was basically just an open secret among the guards that the security was so shitty. So keep that in mind as we move forward, all right? So by the time 1990 rolls around, the museum's security flaws were pretty much common knowledge between all of the criminal entities in Boston. It was just a matter of time before somebody was probably going to hit this place up. And then somebody decided to, on Sunday, March 18th, 1990. Around 12.30 a.m., the thieves were first witnessed by several St. Patrick's Day partiers who were leaving a party that was located near the museum. The two men were disguised as police officers and parked in a hatchback on Palace Road, which was about 100 feet from the side entrance to the museum. All the witnesses just thought they were cops. The museum guards that were on duty that night were Rick Abbott, age 23, and Randy Heaston, age 25. Abbott was a regular night watchman, and it was Heaston's first time on the night shift. Now, the security policy said that one guard would patrol all galleries with a flashlight and a walkie-talkie while the other sat at the security desk. Abbott went on patrol first that night. During his patrol, fire alarms started going off in different rooms in the museum, but he couldn't locate any fire or smoke. So Abbott came back to the security room where the fire alarm control panel was indicating smoke in all these multiple rooms, and he just figured that there was something wrong with the system. So he shut the panel down. He went back on patrol, and before he completed his rounds, he made a quick stop at the side entrance of the museum and briefly opened the side door and shut it again. He did not tell Heaston he was doing this or why. Abbott completed his walk around and returned back to the security desk around 1 a.m., and this is when Heaston goes to do his rounds. About 20 minutes later at 1.20 a.m., the thieves drove up to the side entrance, they parked, and walked up to the side door. They rang the buzzer, which connected them to Abbott through an intercom. 
They explained to Abbott that they were police investigating a disturbance and needed to be buzzed in. So Abbott goes and he looks at the, you know, security TV and he sees two guys wearing what looked like real police uniforms. But at the same time, he didn't know there was any kind of disturbance, but he figured that it was St. Patrick's Day in Boston. So he figured like one of the partiers had climbed over the fence and someone had seen it or reported it. It's something of that nature. So at 1.24 a.m., Abbott let the men in. The thieves were led into a locked foyer that separated the side door from the museum. They walked up to Abbott at his desk and they asked if anyone else was in the museum and to bring them down to the security desk. Abbott got on his walkie-talkie, called Heaston, told him to come back to the security desk and not to finish his rounds. So then Abbott looks at one of the guys and notices that his mustache looked fake. So the other thief told Abbott that he looked familiar and that he may have a warrant for his arrest and to come out from behind the desk and give him some identification. So Abbott walks around to the front of the security desk, right? Now, mind you, the only button to alert police is underneath the security desk, and Abbott just basically got up and walked to the front of it. No way to alert police if he thought anything was weird. So the shorter thief, they, de- they describe him as one short, one tall. The shorter thief forced Abbott up against the wall and he spread his legs, spread his hands eagle, you know, up against the wall and he handcuffed him. And Abbott noticed that he was not being frisked. So Heaston walks into the room right about at this time and then the taller thief turned him around and ended up handcuffing him. So once both guards were handcuffed, the thieves told them, gentlemen, this is a robbery. They were wanting to rob this museum, and they asked the guards not to give them any problems. And to be honest with you, because they were making such shit money, Abbas' reply was literally, they don't pay me enough money to give you any problems. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I know this isn't necessarily a victimless crime, but it kind of is. You know, it kind of sucks that these works of art are taken from the public because that's awesome history and those are one of a kinds. But at the same time, like, nobody's really getting hurt. So, Abbott is just, hey man, I barely make above minimum wage. I don't give a fuck what you guys do. So, then the thieves get out some duct tape and they wrap it around the two guards' heads and eyes. And without asking for directions... Keep that in mind. They did not ask for directions. They led the guards into the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and a workbench. Then the two thieves took out the two guards' wallets and told them, Hey, we know where you guys live. Don't tell the cops or anybody anything. And they would give them money in about a year. And they straight up said, They're like, we'll give you a reward in about a year if you don't say anything about anything to the cops. So at this point, it's about 1.35 a.m. It took the thieves less than 15 minutes to subdue both guards. This whole time, the thieves' movements all around the museum are recorded on infrared motion detectors. 
Now, after subduing the guards, the thieves waited about 13 minutes. And we're not sure why. The theory is that they were waiting to make sure that no police were coming. And after that, they went and entered the Dutch room at 1.45 a.m. The Dutch room is on the second floor. This is where the first steps are actually recorded. The most valuable works were taken from the Dutch room. So the thieves walked up to the paintings and this device started beeping at them. It's a device that would trip off if like somebody in the museum was too close to a painting. So the thieves just smashed it. One of the paintings that they took was The Storm of the Sea of Galilee. And this is the most valuable of Rembrandt's works that were stolen that night. And estimates have placed its value at about $140 million. Another one that they took of his was a painting called A Lady and Gentleman in Black. What they did was they took these, they threw them on the marble floor, broke all the glass in their frames, and they used a blade, like a razor blade or an X-Acto knife, and they cut the canvases out of those frames. They also removed a very large Rembrandt self-portrait oil painting from the wall, but they actually left it leaning against a cabinet. Later on, investigators think that the thieves figured it was too large to transport because it was painted on wood and not on canvas. So that would have been a little bit harder to conceal or whatever. But instead, the thieves took a small postage stamp sized self-portrait etching by Rembrandt that was on display beneath the larger portrait. On the right side of the room, they took a painting called Landscape with Obelisk and another one called The Concert Among by a Dutch painter named Vermeer. Now this is one of only 34 paintings attributed to Vermeer. This painting alone accounts for half of the entire robbery's value. And in 2015, this one painting was estimated to be worth $250 million. Experts also believe that it may be the most valuable stolen object in the world. The last thing that they took from the Dutch room was a bronze Chinese goo, which is about 10 inches tall. Now, these were used for serving wine in ancient China. And this Chinese goo was one of the oldest works in the museum, and it dated back to the Shang Dynasty in the 12th century BC. But its value was only estimated to be around several thousand dollars. They didn't even give a specific number. They're just like, it's not really worth shit compared to everything else, you know? So at 1.51 a.m., while one of the thieves was continuing to work in the Dutch room, the other one entered this narrow hallway, which was called the Short Gallery, and this was on the other end of the second floor. He was in there for a while until the second thief joined him later. So while they're in the Short Gallery, they start removing screws for a frame that was displaying a Napoleonic flag, and it was from Napoleon's Imperial Guard. And they were probably trying to steal this flag. And it looks like they just gave up like halfway through because they didn't take all the screws out. And what they did was they took the 10-inch tall Imperial Eagle finial that was on top of the flagpole. 
Now, there is a $100,000 reward for information leading to the return of the finial alone, just by itself. I'm pretty sure the finial was bronze, but they think that the thieves thought it was gold, or that it looked like gold, so they took that. But also, while they're in the short gallery, they take five sketches by French artist Edgar Degas. These sketches were each done on paper, less than a square foot in size, and made with pencils, inks, washes, and charcoal. All of those sketches combined, compared to the other things that were already stolen, is, you would say, worthless. I mean, it's worth a lot of money. I think all of them combined were worth like $100,000. But when you're looking at one painting that was worth $250 million, you know, it seems, seems like it's not worth that much. Now, after this, they go into what is called the Blue Room. The last work stolen was Chez Tortini by French painter Edouard Manet. And uh, the Blue Room was actually on the first floor, so they were working up and working their way down, which is pretty interesting. And it was the only item taken from the first floor. The museum's motion detectors didn't detect any motion within the Blue Room, the entire time that the thieves were in the building. The only footsteps detected in that room that night were Abbott's footsteps, and that was during the two times he passed through the gallery on his patrol earlier that night. So let's talk about what they actually stole, alright? All in all, 13 pieces of art were stolen. In 1990, at the time of the robbery, the FBI estimated the value of the heist to be around $200 million. And by the year 2000, the estimate for this went up to $500 million. In the late 2000s, some art dealers actually suggested that this heist could be worth $600 million. It was considered the highest value museum robbery until it was surpassed by the Dresden Green Vault burglary in 2019. But... While the experts were looking at the shit that was stolen, they were kind of confused because there were a lot more valuable pieces of art that were left untouched. Some of the paintings were valuable, but the thieves passed over fucking works of art by Raphael, Botticelli, and Michelangelo, and he, they didn't even touch them. And what they took was the relatively valueless item like the Chinese goo and the finial. So my whole thing thinking about that was if you're going to do a robbery like this, whether you're an organized criminal or any kind of criminal for that matter, I'm thinking that they probably had some kind of buyer lined up already. And I don't think that they would sell all of them, you know, at once. They would piece them out for sure. But sometimes, you know, let's say a godfather in the mob says, man, I want that painting. Yeah, how much would you pay me for it? You know, it was kind of one of those scenarios. But another thing, too, is maybe they knew that some of those larger, more expensive items by, like, Michelangelo and, you know, Raphael and stuff like that, maybe they knew if they took those, they would be way hotter. You would have Interpol involved, and they would be scouring the earth for these guys as opposed to just the FBI. Or it could have been a situation where they were maybe harder to steal or something like that. Because you think probably those artists or sculptors, whatever the case is, 
when you get more valuable or older pieces, they're probably more protected than some of the others. And speaking on that, the thieves never entered the third floor, where there was a painting called The Rape of Europa, and it is one of the most valuable paintings in the entire city of Boston. So the thieves got their haul, and as they're getting ready to leave, they checked on the guards one last time, and they were pretty considerate and asked them if they were comfortable. And then they moved to the security director's office, where they took all the video cassettes that recorded their entrance on the closed-circuit cameras. And they took the data printouts from the motion-detecting equipment. The movement data, though, was still captured on a hard drive, and the thieves did not take that. They didn't know about it. Then they moved to take all the artwork out of the museum, and they took it through the side entrance doors where the first time was opened at 2.40 a.m., and then for the last time at 2.45 a.m. They only did it twice, but they took two trips. So from start to finish, the biggest art heist in modern history lasted just 81 minutes and is worth 500 to 600 million dollars. The next shift of guards arrived later in the morning and they realized that something was wrong because they couldn't contact anybody inside the building and they called a security director and he went into the building with because he had keys and nobody was at the front desk so he calls police. The police come and they search the building until they found the two guards. They were still tied up in the basement and they were found at about 8.15 a.m. So the witnesses in the street and the guards described one thief as about 5'9 to 5'10 in his late 30s with a medium build and the other one as 6' tall to 6'1 in his early 30s and he had a heavier build. So in 2005, Robert Poole of Smithsonian Magazine had this to say, What continues to perplex those investigating the Gardner mystery is that no single motive or pattern seems to emerge from the thousands of pages of evidence gathered over the past 15 years, where the work's taken for love, money, ransom, glory, barter, or for some tangled combination of them all. I mean, that was his direct quote, and that is a good fucking question. Now, today, you can still go and visit the Gardner Museum. You can also take virtual tours, too. And you can see what the thieves left behind because, per Isabella Stewart Gardner's wishes in her will, nothing would be altered or changed. So the empty frames are still hanging on the walls. It's pretty wild, to be honest with you. So let's talk a little bit about this investigation. The FBI took immediate control of the case because they figured that the artwork is more than likely going to cross state lines. That's a pretty safe bet. The FBI also believes that the robbery was planned by a criminal organization. The case has no strong physical evidence, and the FBI has largely depended on interrogations, undercover informants, and sting operations to collect all of the information that they have. Their main focus was on the Boston Mafia, which was in the middle of an internal gang war right around this time frame. We'll talk about that when we get into some suspects. But other people suggest that the paintings were stolen by a gang in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood. 
nobody in this neighborhood is going to admit to the involvement. And there was a sting operation that put some of these dudes in prison. None of them still said that they were involved. They all denied any knowledge of the robbery. And then they would be giving false leads and shit like that. And they were even offered reward money. They were offered reduced prison sentences. They were literally offered get out of prison free cards. If they gave information, you know, that led to the recovery of the art. None of them said shit. They said, we don't know who did it. Now, the thieves didn't leave behind any footprints. They had no hair left behind. Now, there are fingerprints that were left at the scene, but it was inconclusive whether those fingerprints belonged to the security guards or the um, thieves themselves. Now, in March 2013, the FBI came out and announced huge progress in their investigation. You guys are going to fucking love this. The FBI said, quote, with a high degree of confidence, they identified the thieves, which they believed were members of a criminal organization based in New England. They also felt, with that same confidence, that the artwork was transported to Connecticut and then Philadelphia in years after the heist, and they were attempted to be sold in Philadelphia in 2002. But the FBI says that whatever happened after 2002, they really don't know. That's why they are always requesting the public's help to locate and return some of this artwork. Now, in 2015, two years later, the FBI stated both thieves were deceased. At first, they didn't publicly identify any individuals, but... There were some sources, I guess, that were close to the investigation, and they said they were associated with a gang from Dorchester. Also in 2015, later on, the FBI revealed the names of the primary suspects. One of which was George Reisfelder. The other one was Leonard DiMuzio. These were two low-level associates of the late mobster Carmelo Merlino. Both of these guys did resemble the sketches of the criminals, and both of these guys died within one year of the heist. The investigators also said that they suspected the art was transported, you know, with organized crime networks to Connecticut, Philadelphia. Like I said, they were trying to sell this shit on the black market, to be honest with you. Like I said, after that, FBI doesn't know shit about shit. Now, let me go back to this with a high degree of confidence statement that the FBI said. Imagine you're on trial for murder, okay? And the prosecution is talking to the jury, and they look at the jury, and they say, Hey, we don't have any actual evidence that you committed the murder, but... We have a high degree of confidence that they did. That right there just makes me laugh, all right? Because when I was researching this, you know, I, I kept seeing people searching for the fact that it was solved. And I read this and I'm like, with a high degree of confidence? With that same confidence? You know what I'm saying? Like, I understand you have your informants, but you still have no evidence at all now listen i can make assumptions all day about shit but i can't just 
go out and openly accuse people with a high degree of confidence. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just going to just throw that out there. So even though these two guys were more than likely involved, it's hard telling really because even when Abbott was originally interviewed uh, about the robbery, because let's face it, this sounds like somebody on the inside had to be involved some sort of way whether it was by giving somebody knowledge or helping or whatever the case is, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, but there had to be somebody on the inside, whether they were working there prior to this or whether they were currently working there, you know, at the time. Abbott literally said when he was asked, they're like, well, what did he look like? He's like, I can't remember. And Abbott, I'm not trying to be the devil's advocate, but Abbott, like I said, this dude is making barely above minimum wage. He openly admitted to coming into work like high as fuck all the time off weed, smoking weed or getting drunk because a dude would play in a band as well. Their shows would end, you know, just before he had to go to work. So he would be coming into work fucked up, you know, and this is all happening at about 1 a.m., right? So let's say he gets to work at 11 or midnight and then he says, well, I, I can't really remember what they look like. So the FBI kind of went narrow-minded in that aspect, and they're like, well, these are the sketches that they gave. These guys matched the sketches, and granted, you had the partygoers, you know, outside who also witnessed the two guys dressed as cops, but there's also a theory that there were five guys involved because they had to have some kind of help on the outside while all this was going on on the inside. So who's to say that... If a witness out on the street was like, yeah, these are the two guys, that could have been two guys standing outside, not the actual guys inside. Now, before we take a look at some of these suspects, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, I'm going to play some advertisements here for about three or four minutes. I will see you back here after that. All right, and we're back. So like I had previously mentioned... There had to be somebody on the inside, whether they were currently working there or previously, that gave up some kind of knowledge. So naturally, all the FBI and cops, they were super suspicious of the two guards that were on duty that night. Like I also mentioned, Abbott was a self-described hippie. He was a rock guitarist. You know, he was a regular on the night shift. He stunned. He had just started the night shift. That was his first fucking night. What a hell of a night, right? So, because art crimes of this nature typically require an inside source, these two were super high on the list. He also had some really suspicious behavior, and I'm referring to Abbott, the night before the theft and the night of the theft. Let's go back and say while he was on patrol, Abbott briefly opened and shut the side door. Now, this is a move that some believe could have been a signal to the thieves that were parked outside. Abbott told authorities that he did this routinely to ensure that the door was locked. While reviewing past tape of him working, he never ever did that. That was the first time that he had ever done that. So there's a fucking lie. One of Abbott's uh, co-workers even told journalists that if Abbott would have opened that door routinely, as he says, his bosses would have seen it on the computers and would have reprimanded him. He would have been in trouble for it. Now, there was even more suspicion being drawn to the museum's motion detectors, 
which did not detect any movement in the blue room, which housed that Chez Tortini piece of art, during the 81 minutes that the thieves were in the museum. The only footsteps in that room that night were Abbas, and this was when he was doing his security guard patrol. Now, they brought in a security consultant, and he reviewed the motion detector equipment several weeks after the theft, and he came to the conclusion that they were operating correctly. Abbott has always maintained his innocence. The FBI agent that was in charge of the case in the early years, he straight up said, like, these guards are way too incompetent and foolish to have even pulled off this crime. And I understand that. That's great. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't involved. And Abbott actually gave an interview to NPR later in 1990. And he straight up says, I was just this hippie guy who wasn't hurting anything, wasn't on anybody's radar. And the next day, I was on everybody's radar for the largest art heist in history. That was a direct quote from Abbott from late 1990. But could you imagine that, though? Let's Like, let's say it was just dumb luck. You know, you decided to do something, you know, like that side door or whatever. And one day you're just some, some hippie guy playing guitar in a rock band. The next day you are one of the prime suspects in a $500 million art heist that is still unsolved. Man, that would be some, that'd be some stress. In 2015... The United States Attorney's Office in Massachusetts released a security video from the museum on the night before the theft. Honestly, it doesn't surprise me that it took them 25 years to either find this video or release it, but hey, whatever, do your thing. Now, the footage is pretty grainy, but it shows Abbott, who was on guard during the day of March 17th, opening the same side doors used by the thieves and admitting an unidentified man in a waist-length coat and an upturned collar, and he let him up to the security desk. The museum's security director, Anthony Amore, watched the video and he said, This raises way more questions than it does answers. Abbott told investigators he didn't remember the incident or did not recognize the man. So the FBI went and had to request the public's assistance because, like I said, this is in 2015. So a bunch of former guards that used to work there came forward and said that the stranger that Abbott actually let in was his boss. And he was the museum's deputy security chief at the time. So I don't know. I still think there's some inside involvement going on. I don't know. Maybe he got that reward a year later for not saying shit. If he did, good for him. Could have bought him a new guitar or something like that. All right, here's a big name on the list of suspects. Whitey Bulger. He was one of the most powerful crime bosses in Boston during this time frame. And he was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang. And if you don't know who Whitey Bulger is... I don't think you really know much about crime. So Whitey Bulger claimed that he didn't organize the heist. And one of the funniest things was he straight up told the FBI that he sent guys out 
to find out who did the robbery because the robbery was committed on his turf and he wanted to be paid tribute for it because that's how organized crime works. I'm pretty sure we all know that. You don't go on somebody else's turf and commit a robbery like this without giving a percentage to the person in charge of that territory. So Whitey is like, listen, I didn't do it, but I did send my guys out to find out who because somebody owes me money for doing this in my neighborhood. The FBI agent who investigated Bulger was Thomas McShane. He said that Bulger's strong ties with the Boston police could explain how the thieves acquired legitimate police uniforms. Or maybe that real police were arranged to do the heist. Bulger also had relations with the Irish Republican Army. And the reason the Irish Republican Army comes into play is because the tripping of a fire alarm ahead of a heist is like a calling card of the IRA or the Ulster Volunteer Force, which is like the rival. Both of these organizations had agents in Boston at the time, and both had demonstrated to some capability in the past of pulling off art heists this big. McShane's investigation of Whitey Bulger and the IRA did not produce any evidence to tie anybody to the theft. And according to Charlie Hill, who is a retired art and antiques investigator for Scotland Yard, Bulger gave the Gardner Works to the IRA, and they are most likely in Ireland. And to be honest, that is a very plausible theory. I don't know, I'm kind of weary on Whitey Bulger being involved. Now here's something really, really interesting. In 1994, museum director Ann Hawley received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate a return for this artwork. The writer of this letter explained that they were a third-party negotiator and did not know the identity of the thieves, but they said that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence. Now please, you got to remember what these letters are saying because this plays factor in other suspects. Now the opportunity had passed, and there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork, and they wanted to negotiate a return. The writer of this letter explained that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions. They wanted immunity for themselves and all the other people involved, and $2.6 million for the return of the artwork. This money was to be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time the art was handed over. They said that if the museum was interested in negotiating, they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. And whoever wrote this letter, just to establish themselves as not a bullshitter, they gave information only known by the museum and FBI. So whoever wrote this letter was most definitely involved to some extent. So Hawley got a hold of, obviously, the FBI. They thought this was a really strong lead. So they ended up contacting the Boston Globe, and they put that coded message in the May 1st, 1994 edition of the Boston Globe. Now, a few days later, Hawley received a second letter. And in it, the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating because they saw that coded message, but they were scared of what they thought was a huge investigation by federal and state authorities to determine 
the identity of the person writing the letters. And the writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but Holly never heard from this person ever again. Pretty wild, right? Now, like I said, keep in mind the part where I said in the first letter, this person explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence. So we also have another, this is a smaller time suspect, but his name was Brian McDevitt. He was a con man from Boston who tried to rob the Hyde Collection in Glen Falls, New York in 1981. He used disguises as well. He dressed up as a FedEx driver, and he had handcuffs, he had duct tape, and he was planning to steal a Rembrandt. He was also a huge fan of flags. He was an aficionado of flags. And this dude fit the description of the larger robber, except he had thinning red hair. So the FBI was super interested in this guy, and they went and interviewed him in late 1990. And McDevitt denied any involvement, and he refused to take a polygraph test. The FBI ran his fingerprints, which didn't match any of those at the crime scene. McDevitt later moved to California, and he got into television and film writing, and he ended up dying in 2004. Carmelo Merlino is definitely high on my list of people involved. So the Merlino gang was part of the Boston Mafia. They ran their operations out of an automobile repair shop ran by Carmelo Merlino. And this auto repair shop is pretty fucking close to the Gardner Museum. Now, the Merlino guys, the associates... They may have gotten some knowledge of the museum's uh, weaknesses and lack of security because of a gangster named Louis Royce who cased this place, they think, as early as 1981. His whole plan was him and another associate, they were going to light up smoke bombs and rush the galleries, you know, amid all this confusion. They were going to fucking straight up go in there, light a bunch of smoke bombs, and just rush the paintings and grab them and run, right? So in 1982... When undercover FBI agents were investigating Royce and his associates for an unrelated art theft, they found out that they were interested in robbing the Gardner Museum. And the FBI warned the museum, hey, there's dudes planning to rob this place. You need to beef up your security, right? Royce was in prison at the time of the robbery. But he did share his plan with a bunch of other people, and one of his associates was named Stephen Rossetti. Some people believe he may have ordered the robbery or shared it with somebody else. Alright, now these two dudes are probably two of the main people of interest that you need to pay attention to. And trust me, there's a couple of other more. That's why it's a long episode. There's a lot of suspects to talk about. But Robert Garente and Robert Gentile. Now, these guys were associated with the Merlino gang. Garente died from cancer in 2004, but his widow told the FBI in 2010 that her husband had previously owned some of the paintings. She claimed that when her husband got sick with cancer in the early 2000s, he gave the paintings to Gentile for safekeeping. Gentile denied these accusations, and he said he was never given the paintings and knew nothing about where they were. So federal authorities indicted Gentile on drug charges in 2012. A lot of people believe that this was an attempt to pressure him for information on the 
Gardner Museum paintings, or any of the works for that matter. So he submitted to a polygraph test, which indicated he was lying when he denied any knowledge of the theft or location of the artwork. Gentile maintained that he was telling the truth and demanded a retest. During the retest, he said that Guarente's widow had once shown him the missing Rembrandt self-portrait, to which the polygraph machine indicated that he was telling the truth. Now, Gentile's lawyer felt that all of Gentile's claims were being affected by all of the federal agents and all of this stuff, so he requested a smaller meeting so that Gentile could, you know, try to speak more honestly. So they got a smaller meeting with Gentile, and he straight up said that he did not have any information. So a few days later, the FBI raided Gentile's house in Manchester, Connecticut, with a search warrant. The FBI found a secret ditch beneath a false floor in the backyard shed, but they found it empty. Gentile's son explained that the ditch flooded a few years prior, and his father was upset about whatever was stored there. Now, in the basement, they found a copy of the Boston Herald from March 1990 that reported the theft. They also found a piece of paper that indicated what each piece might sell for on the black market. Beyond these two things, no conclusive evidence was found to indicate that he ever had the actual paintings. Now, Gentile went to prison for 30 months on these drug charges. If he knew any kind of information about the theft, he did not share it. Now, if he would have shared this information, he would have got a reduced sentence, or he just would have been let out of prison, period. No more questions asked. But he did his 30 months, and after getting out of prison, he spoke with an investigative reporter named Stephen Kirkjian, and he claims that he was framed by the FBI. And he said how him being in prison was detrimental to his finances and his personal life and all this. And he also explained that the list found in the basement was written up by a criminal trying to broker return of the works from Garente and was talking to Gentile as an intermediary, like Gentile was the middleman. So when this investigative reporter asked about what he was so upset about in the ditch when it flooded or whatever, Gentile said he couldn't remember, but he was pretty sure it could have been just some small motors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Best answer ever. Another guy associated with the Merlino gang is a guy named David Turner. The FBI began investigating him in 1992 when an unidentified source told them that David Turner had access to the paintings. Merlino happened to be arrested that same year for cocaine trafficking, and he told authorities that he could return the paintings for a reduced prison sentence. He asked David Turner to track down the paintings, but Turner failed to do it, but he had heard that they were in a church in South Boston. Another associate that was arrested in the drug sting told authorities about Turner's involvement in several break-ins, but never mentioned the Gardner heist. Based on conversations with Merlino after his release from prison in the mid-1990s, authorities kind of figured that Merlino never had direct access to the paintings, but possibly could broker for their return because of his reputation. Despite the claims of innocence, the FBI believes he may have been one of the thieves. 
Evidence indicates that he went to Florida to pick up a cocaine order just days before the heist. Credit card records say he remained there through the night of the robbery, but some investigators say that this may have been David Turner's attempt at creating an alibi. The FBI thinks the other thief was his friend and Merlino associate, George Reisfelder, who ended up dying in July of 1991. Now, the interesting thing about the two people that they suspect dying within a year of the heist, low-level mob associates, that's kind of how the mob works. Unless you're a big dog on the list, they're going to tie up loose ends. Look at the uh, Lufthansa heist. That's the same thing that they did, too, which was a huge heist as well. Now, no clues were found in his apartment or the homes of any of his friends or relatives, but his siblings recall a painting similar to Ches Tortini in his bedroom. Investigators believe he looks similar to the smaller-sized guy, the skinnier guy, in the police sketches. So in 1999, the FBI arrested David Turner, Merlino, Rossetti, and a bunch of others in a sting operation the day they planned to rob a Loomis Fargo vault. When the FBI brought David Turner in for questioning, they told him they had information that he participated in the Gardner robbery and that if he returned the paintings, they would let him go. He told authorities he didn't know who stole the paintings and he didn't know where they were. At his 2001 trial, he claimed entrapment. And he said that the FBI let the Loomis Fargo plot proceed so they could pressure him for information about the Gardner paintings. But the jury found him guilty, sent him to prison. <laughs> now, David Turner did know Robert Gentile through Garante. And in 2010, he wrote a letter to Robert Gentile asking if he could call Turner's former girlfriend to help recover the Gardner paintings. Now, in cooperation with the FBI, Robert Gentile spoke with Turner's girlfriend, and she told him that Turner wanted him to speak with two of his ex-convict friends in Boston. The FBI wanted Gentile to meet the men and send an FBI undercover agent with him, but Gentile did not want to cooperate after this. David Turner ended up getting out of prison in November of 2019, which is one month after Stephen Rossetti did. Carmelo Merlino died in prison in 2005. Now, another criminal named Bobby Donati was murdered in 1991, and this was while a gang war was going on with the Patriarcha crime family. His involvement in the Gardner heist was suspected after a New England art thief named Miles Connor Jr. talked to the authorities. Connor was in jail at the time of the heist, but he believed Bobby Donati and another dude named David Houghton were the masterminds of the robbery. Connor had worked with Donati in past art heists and claimed the two cased the Gardner Museum where Donati took interest in the finial. Connor also claimed that Houghton visited him in jail after the heist and said that he and Donati organized it and were going to use the paintings to get Connor out of jail. If this is true, they probably borrowed the idea from Connor because in the past, he had actually returned art to reduce sentences. 
Like, this is something that he had done before. Like, he would rob art museums. He would be in prison for something else. And he'd be like, hey, you give me a reduced sentence, I can probably manage to get you some of this art back. So they think that Donati had stole this idea from Connor to try to barter the art for uh, reduced prison sentences of friends. Now, Donati and Houghton's appearances did not fit any of the witness descriptions. So Miles Connor suggested they probably hired low-level gangsters to carry out the robbery, which would make sense. I was kind of talking about that earlier. Now, Bobby Donati died within two years of the robbery. Houghton also died within two years of the robbery. But Houghton actually died from an illness, and it wasn't murder. Donati was fucking murdered. Still unsolved, too. So Miles Connor told investigators he could assist in returning the Gardner Works in exchange for the museum's posted reward and his freedom. We'll get to the reward here in a little bit, because the reward was fucking insane. When investigators didn't give in to Miles Connor's demands, because there was no evidence, Connor couldn't bring any evidence into the picture to make the authorities actually believe him, he suggested that they speak with criminal and antiques dealer by the name of William P. Youngworth. So the FBI opened up a case on Youngworth, and they conducted raids on his home and his antique store properties in the 1990s. These raids caught the attention of a journalist named Tom Mashberg, who started talking with Youngworth in 1997 about that theft. One night in August 1997, Youngworth called Mashberg and told him he had proof he could return the Gardner paintings under the right conditions. That night, Youngworth picked up Mashberg from the Boston Herald offices and he drove him to a warehouse in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Youngworth led him inside to a storage unit with several large cylinder tubes. He removed one painting from its tube and he rolled it out and he showed it to Mashberg under a flashlight. Mashberg said it looked like the storm of the Sea of Galilee. He noticed cracking along the canvas, and the edges were cut in a manner consistent with the museum's reports, as well as seeing Rembrandt's signature on the ship's rudder. Mashberg wrote about his experience in the Boston Herald, but he left out details to hide Youngworth's identity and the painting's location. He reported that his informant, which was Youngworth, told him the robbery was pulled off by five men and identified two. Donati was one of the robbers, and Houghton was responsible with moving the art to a safe house afterward. The FBI found the location of this warehouse like several months later, and they raided it, and they didn't find shit. Now, there are a lot of people who dispute the authenticity of of Youngworth's claims. So Youngworth actually supplied paint chips to Mashberg, and federal authorities reported that they were indeed from Rembrandt's era, but did not match oils used for the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The way Mashberg described the painting as being unfurled, people have called bullshit on that, because these paintings were on canvas, and if they were dried up and that old and somebody went to roll them up and put them into a cylinder, they would have been fucking almost destroyed. So federal authorities and the museum began working with Youngworth after Mashberg's story was published, but Youngworth made the negotiations very difficult. He would not work with authorities unless his demands were met, 
which included full immunity and Miles Connors' release from jail. And obviously, the authorities were skeptical of Youngworth's, you know, honesty and that he was going to follow through with it, so they offered him partial immunity. And the United States attorney who was overseeing this case, he eventually just stopped talking with Youngworth unless he could provide more reliable evidence that he had access to the Gardner Museum art that was stolen. Youngworth again provided a vial of paint chips, supposedly from the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, and 25 color photographs of the paintings and a lady and gentleman in black. A joint statement from the museum and federal investigators said that the chips were not from the stolen Rembrandts, but they did test as being from 17th century paintings and could potentially be from the concert, which was one of the works that was stolen. Now, in 2014, investigative reporter Stephen Kirkjian he wrote to a gangster named Vincent Ferreira, and this was Bobby Donati's, he was his superior during this gang war, and he was pretty much asking for information on the Gardner theft, and he did receive a call back from an associate of Ferreira who explained the FBI was wrong in suspecting the Merlino gang's involvement and claimed Donati organized the robbery. The caller explained that Donati visited Ferreira in jail about three months before the theft. And this was when Ferreira had been charged with murder, so he was locked up. Donati told Ferreira that he was going to do something to get him out of jail. Three months later, Ferreira heard news about the Gardner heist. After this, Donati visited him again and confirmed to Ferreira that he was involved in the robbery. He claimed to have buried the artwork and would start a negotiation for his release once the investigation cooled down. The negotiations never occurred because Donati was murdered, still unsolved. Kirkjian believes Donati was motivated to free Ferreira from prison because Ferreira could protect him in the gang war. A friend of Garante also corroborated that Donati organized the robbery and that he gave the paintings to Garante when he became concerned for his own safety. Garante and Donati were pretty damn close friends. And the two were seen at a social club in Revere shortly before the robbery with a bag of police uniforms. So, long list of suspects going on there. To end this off, let's, let's talk about this. The selection of works... And the kind of crude ways that the thieves handled the artwork has led investigators to believe the thieves were not experts commissioned to steal these particular pieces of art. Also interesting, the statute of limitations expired in 1995. So any of the thieves or anyone who participated in this heist cannot be prosecuted. Federal prosecutors have even stated that anyone who willingly returns the items will not be prosecuted. They just want the fucking art back. And here's the reward money. 
Because of the museum's low funds and they had no insurance policy, the director got help from Southby's and Christie's auction houses to post a reward of $1 million within three days of the art heist. In 1997, this reward was increased to $5 million. In 2017, the reward was doubled to $10 million with an expiration date set for the end of the year. The reward was extended because they started getting all kinds of tips from the public. It is the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. And the reward is for information that leads directly to the recovery of all of the items in good condition. Now, this case is still unsolved. No arrests have been made and no works have ever been recovered. Pretty wild shit, am I right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, man? I've never done a heist episode, and I'll be honest, like, researching this was like a fucking movie. No arrests have been made, cases unsolved, no works have ever been recovered, you have a, this huge list of suspects, this is like a whodunit mystery, you know what I'm saying? I'm pretty confident, you know, in who I think it is, and I'm sure a lot of you guys probably have your favorite people of interest or suspects as well, but like I said, this was kind of fun for me because, you know, nobody got hurt, technically, you know, a couple gangsters died within a year afterward, but other than that, you know, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. They were in the middle of a mob war. There's a good chance they would have gotten shot down anyway. So I guess with all that behind us, ways you can get a hold of me, you can email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. You can also hit up my Instagram, mysterious underscore podcast. I am on Twitter at podcast MC. I will admit though, I'm not really on there that much. I really don't share shit on there. I don't know. I'm just not really a fan of it. Like the Facebook page or join the Facebook group. I will say if you're going to join the Facebook group, please answer the question. So otherwise my admins will not let you in. It's not really a choice of me seeing it. I have several admin who organize the group and keep it going and keep it entertaining. And uh, yeah, if you don't answer the questions, they ain't going to let you in. Um, other than that, for information on live shows coming up, I'm going to be in Louisville on April 23rd with Hillbilly Horror Stories and Brohio Podcast. That is going to be an awesome show. If you'd like information, just reach out and get a hold of me. Tickets, I think, are 20 bucks. April 23rd, uh, it's going to be a great time, super fun time. All the live shows are. Uh, I'm also going to be at CrimeCon in Vegas. Obviously, you guys know the dates if you're if you're into this stuff. I will be there. I won't be on Podcast Row, but I'll be lurking around somewhere. Um, also, we have tickets still on sale for the cruise. Yes, me and Hillbilly Horror Stories in Brohio are going to be doing a four-day cruise where we do live shows. <laughs> so, that is not until September, but if you'd like information on that, you can visit any one of our social media pages. We have them posted. You can go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and we have all the live show information posted there as well, and especially the, all the details of the cruise. So, with all that, I guess I'll see you folks on the flip side. <laughs> <laughs>